Now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go about now to all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's words prevail against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Arier on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad and Torah Gezer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hoshi, and they came to Danjan and around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And they went to the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone about, when they got about the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were five hundred thousand men. Okay. Well, we've got this question of the numbering of the people. Now, this is what David said to Joab to do. Go number Israel and Judah. And uh, maybe the first thing we ought to think about is what did that mean? What is numbering the people? Value of strength. Yeah. Uh, maybe even we're numbering the uh, men of war, the, those who could fight. But I think the idea is we're measuring the strength. We're measuring the size of, of our forces and uh, of, of those that are under our rule. Um, and that may give you a clue as to why the Lord was not pleased with that. What would be wrong with numbering your troops? Shouldn't matter. Why not? Because you have God. Now, God doesn't really care whether you've got a lot of troops or a few because the Lord's stronger than any number. Joab actually didn't like the idea. You know, he senses that this is putting his confidence in the wrong source. He recognizes this as being unwise. So that's an interesting feature, it seems to me. Um, and, but Joab follows instructions. Now, I want to come to another point before we keep going with this. Um, who was behind David doing this? God. Satan. God? Satan. <laughs> Why do you say God? Well, God only God allows people to get be tempted. Yeah. So God gives you his permission. Verse 1 says so. Verse 1 says, now the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So God's anger was what incited David to number the Israelites. So why would we say it was Satan? First Chronicles says it was. Yeah, look at First Chronicles 21. Blows your mind the first time you see it. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Same exact story. But one says the anger of God incited David. The other one says Satan moved David. 
that's uh, one of the famous contradictions in the Bible. Was it God that did it or Satan? Yes. God and Satan aren't the same, are they? So how can it be both God and Satan that did it? Was this David acting out against God out of anger? I think it's the Lord that's angry with Israel and wants a reason to punish them that he's motivating David to number the people. Clint? So I think it was mentioned yesterday how uh, you, know, you look at the example of the cross. You know, When Jesus died, was that God or was that Satan? It's like, well, yes. They can use the same event, but they're trying to accomplish different purposes. I think that's exactly right. There are times when this is not either or. This is both. When Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave to those traitors, was it uh, God in the hearts of those brothers that motivated them to sell Joseph? Who was it? Satan. But what would you say? Would you say that uh, this was Satan's plan? to make Joseph vice Pharaoh and uh, provide relief for the family? What did Joseph himself say about that? He saw that it was God's hand. So what you see is that God and Satan sometimes work in the same event. They work for different purposes. I think we may have mentioned yesterday Paul's thorn in the flesh <laughs> for a different reason. Well, do you remember the identity of Paul's thorn in the flesh, it was a what? Messenger of Satan. And why was it given to Paul? To keep him from exalting himself. Why would Satan want Paul not to be prideful? Wasn't Satan that wanted Paul not to be prideful? God was using Satan's thorn, Satan's messenger, to humble Paul. Satan had a purpose, God had a purpose. That's often true. And so I think both God and Satan worked in this. Satan trying to bring David down, God being angry with David and seeking a reason to punish him. And so, for whatever reason, Eric. Uh, uh, it's just interesting that he wants to number all of the soldiers that he has, but in the previous chapter he has 37 guys that were able to make great accomplishments. So why, why would you even need any more than 37? Well, and the more important point of the previous chapter is he has the Lord that's working right. through those men. Right. Yes, and so you don't, it doesn't matter the quantity of soldiers you have. If the Lord is the strength, the, the, the you know, quantity of soldiers is irrelevant. Because it doesn't matter to the Lord how many he uses, right? Can I go along with them not wanting the kings to accumulate chariots for war? Yes. Good point. Alex. It strikes me out that David, of all people, would make this mistake. After all, it was David who defeated Goliath through the Lord. And now he thinks the uh, confidence he should have is in the number of his troops. Yeah. Good point. Kimberly. So, so God can use Satan like, for his will, like he did in Yes. Jew. I think so. Yes. So David is succumbing to this prideful attitude of, of wanting to trust in the horses and the chariots, or in this case, in the number of his soldiers. And uh, so, so Joab does what he said. Joab follows orders, at least this time, and he numbers the people, and he comes up with the quantity. There's some discrepancy in numbers with First Chronicles, perhaps because of rounding, and perhaps also because the standing army was included in Chronicles, perhaps not here in, in uh, Samuel. Comments and questions on those first nine verses.
Yes, ma'am. Why was God angry with David? Do I don't know. know. Probably something David did, but Eric. I used to think this was a really quick census, but in verse uh, verse eight, it took him nine months and twenty days. So this was a sin that was going on for quite some time. Yes, yeah, it was a process. Other thoughts, right? I don't know how true this is, but my Bible suggests that as soon as God's angry at Israel, it may be because of their support of Absalom and Sheba and their revolt against David. So maybe. And then he looked at this opportunity to punish them for that. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Mike? Um, to add to what Eric was saying with the nine, nine months and 20 days, that's about the same time as David with Bathsheba and all that that was going on because that was sort of a lengthy process. Mm, good point. Sometimes our sins develop over a period of time and bring us down gradually. Good observation. Other thoughts? Well, the Lord isn't happy with this. 10 to 17. David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When David rose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offered you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until an appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. The angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord, and when he saw the angel, who was striking the people. He said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's hand. David has the people numbered, and then how does he feel? Shame. Ashamed, guilty. Somehow at this moment it dawns on David that he was wrong, and he humbles himself. And uh, it... it, it bothers him. What does he do? Confesses. He confesses, which is exactly the right thing to do. I have sinned greatly in what I have done. We have so much trouble with saying that. We will say that and then kill it by a thousand exceptions, qualifications, shifting of the blame, or whatever. Just to say, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. David recognizes he should not have put his confidence in the number of his soldiers. He frankly recognizes his sin and confesses it, which is an essential step for us. You know, there are just times when it is difficult for us to admit, I did wrong. I did wrong. It was your fault. You know, you made me. 
I, I'd have never done it if it hadn't been for what you did. You know, so you appreciate David's frankness and full acknowledgement of his error. He asks for God's mercy. And God sends the prophet Gad to David with information on the punishment. How is the punishment going to work? Yes, basically, you know, he can choose his poison. Um, and, and he's got options, you know, seven or maybe three years of famine. There's some debate about that. Three months of the foes, your foes pursuing you or three days of disease. And basically, as uh, the, the intensity of the, uh, you know, disaster increases as the length of time diminishes. So... Uh, and what's David's reasoning for which one he picks? I guess he thinks that God would be more merciful than a person, that God might spare more people than they're being chased by armies of somebody else. So he ends up picking the three days of pestilence as opposed to maybe being chased by his enemies. It's amazing to think that God would be more merciful than man, but I do believe that's a fair principle. I think that's true. God is more merciful than men. Um, it reminds me of a passage in Hosea 11 that basically says that. Hosea 11 and verse 9, I will not execute my fierce anger, I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Hebrews 11, 9. Because he's God and not man, he's going, to, he's going to forgive them. He's not going to, to be so hard on them. God's uh, nature is forgiving and merciful. So David trusts in that as God's essential character and believes he would really be better off to just leave himself the hand of God, thinking that God will be more merciful than men will. That's an interesting approach to that, but I think he's right. And what, what does God do? Not very well, he sends this disease, this pestilence. And what does it do? Kills 70,000 men. What does that do? It changes your Yeah, changes it might not be the best word. What's the verb? Yeah. He's all interested in how many soldiers he can pride himself in. Well, he hadn't got as many, no. <laughs> you know, he lost uh, 70,000 men, a kind of a blow to his pride and confidence in, in the things that he has. So uh, that's a, a powerful uh, lesson, I think. Uh, God will punish you in the ways that you perhaps really uh, should be punished. And, uh, wow, just a terrible pestilence. Um, and, and who is sort of directing this pestilence? Which angel? Yes, an angel of destruction. What do we call it? In verse 16. Yeah, a lot of discussion about the identity of the angel of the Lord. And several 
ways people look at that. Let me suggest a possibility. The idea of the Lord having an angel is the idea of the Lord having a particular special messenger. And, and this messenger comes at critical moments to do various things. If, uh, if I tell you that President Obama said today that uh, we were going over the fiscal cliff and there was no return, I don't even know what they're doing on that lately. I haven't, <laughs> haven't worried about it. Uh, but but what, if, what if we hear President Obama said this about the fiscal cliff today? Is it possible that it really wasn't from the lips of Obama that that was said? In fact, it's probable. Who probably said that? His press secretary. But his press secretary said it because Obama told him to say it. So it would be the press secretary who, who is actually the source of information, uh, who is actually the spokesman, but Obama is the source. When, when God has an angel, when you've got the angel of the Lord, then that angel represents God. He speaks for God. You know, as you speak to the angel, you're speaking to God, not directly, but through the angel. So there's a lot of passages where the angel of the Lord um, basically is seen as the Lord himself. I think in the sense that he represents the Lord. He is the spokesman of the Lord. And, and so people can talk to the Lord through him. Now, a lot of people have wanted to deify in some way the angel of the Lord and make this actually a manifestation of God or Jesus or whatever. Maybe, but I don't see a reason for that. I think it's better to see this as a special representative that really represents and symbolizes the Lord to the people. You don't have to agree with that. Uh, probably the more popular view is that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ or something like that. But I think that is a bit of a struggle with Hebrews 1, and I don't really see that that's necessary. <laughs> However it is, though, this angel of the Lord um, relaxes his hand, and, and the, the plague is sort of stopped in mid-plague at a certain point. Comments and thoughts. We've got, talked about several things in this segment. Ethan? I think when you look back on David's life, you can really see why he chose to fall into the hand of God. Because all through his life, he ran from his enemies and was suffering day and night from fear of them killing him. And yet, also in his life, he saw the mercy of God, even in his judgment, in his punishment for David. And so he knew that God would have more mercy than his enemies. Good point. I agree with you. Logan? Uh, two things. First of all, um, I think it's really remarkable how, as opposed to different times in his life, whenever he was Sheba that he had gone through with it, had killed Uriah, had taken Bathsheba as, and as his wife. It wasn't until Nathan came to him and confronted him that he then turns. But here, he doesn't even receive any consequences whenever his soul is grieved, whenever he turns to God. I think that's something maybe for us, yeah, we repent, yeah, we you know, say we're sorry and so forth. But that might be when somebody knows whenever we're reaping some bad consequences from it. So I find that very re remarkable <coughs> part of David. Uh, but I have a question about uh, his choice of the punishment because while he uses the reasoning of um, the reasoning of falling into the hand of God instead of man, doesn't seem like kind of a selfish choice because he could choose to be pursued by his own enemies. He would be suffering for his own sins and not the people. 
but he chooses instead punishment that inflicts pretty much all of it on the people, whereas he doesn't get sick. Of I don't know that fleeing from his enemies would just be David. I'm assuming it would be the whole nation. It would be a political problem, too. Right. So I don't think it was a selfish choice. I don't think that was his motivation. In the, in the sense that he wanted the people to suffer about him. Todd? Question about the, like the, the source of the whole problem. It goes back to the very beginning of the chapter when it says his anger is kindled against Israel and then he incites David against him. So he's angry for David's sin with the census. But wasn't he originally angry with Israel in the first place? Yes. Okay. So wouldn't the sin maybe be justified in that sense that part not the sin, part of the punishment on the people? Maybe. Okay. Could be. Could be that there's a double motive for sending the pestilence, not only to punish David, but also to punish the people. Could be. Okay. I think it's amazing how God David knows that God is more merciful in his wrath than man is in his peace. Yeah, good point. I mean, God is amazing in his mercy. His judgment, punishment is totally understandable. I think it's his grace and mercy that defies explanation. You can see why God would get angry. You can see why he'd punish. But why is he so merciful? That, that's really encouraging. Beto. Is there a uh, connection between this this messenger of the Lord uh, or angel of the Lord and the angel for the tenth plague in Exodus? Well, it, I mean, we have several passages where we have the Lord or an angel of the Lord. But specifically, like killing. Well, he did do that. I mean, you know, there's some obviously some parallel. Okay. Eric. In verse 10 when he says that I have sinned greatly, it seems like even in our culture sometimes we say things other than I've sinned, and I think we, I do this more than I should say I'm sorry rather than I have sinned. We're not using God's words all the time, and we replace it with things, with things that man made up. Yeah. Saying I sinned is hard to do, isn't it? It might be easier to say I'm sorry, but it's not the same thing. I agree. Elizabeth. God was already angry. Like, if David would have done this without him being so angry and then repented without any consequences, do you think the punishment would have been as severe? Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? J.D.? Who's the Jebusite? Uh, well, the Jebusite ends up being uh, this uh, Arana guy in verse uh, 16. That's where... Uh, the angels stopped the killing at that point. The Jebusites were the prior occupants of Jerusalem that seemed to just sort of be incorporated into the people of God now. Other thoughts, questions, comments? Yes, maybe. Well, David, like God and Saint, they moved David to do the census. So, like, God was already angry for a previous sin. Why didn't he just punish them for that sin? I don't know the answer to that. Tim? Is that not the threshing floor where they lived about the temple? Yes, it is. Yeah, good observation. Yeah. Other thoughts? Okay, uh, 18 to 25. And God came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor, of Arana and the Jebusite. So David went up at God's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. 
And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Okay, so David had asked the question, I'm the guilty one, why punish the nation? God stops the plague, and Gad tells David to erect an altar on this particular threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. That was what God wanted David to do so that the plague would be stopped. And so he went to Arana, he explained the situation, I need to buy this threshing floor and some animals because the plague is here and so the plague can be held back. What's Arana's attitude? Take it, please. You know, I mean, who wants the plague to continue? So he, he, he's happy for him to have it. But what does David say in response to Arana? Yes, if it doesn't cost me anything, it's not a sacrifice. He insists on paying for it because he doesn't want to offer to God something that didn't cost him anything, something that doesn't really show any sacrifice on his part, any self-denial, any giving. You know, that's a great principle. Do you try to offer to the Lord things that don't cost you anything? You know, well, I'm going to be doing this anyway. I might as well do it. I'm going to be watching TV anyway. I'll read the Bible. You know, or other ways of trying to do things to get something for nothing. You know, that's what we want to do. We don't want to try to find some way of offering God something that really won't cost us anything. The more it costs us, the better it is. We need to want to make sacrifices and to, to give up things, you know, for the Lord. So I think that's a valid principle. He's going to pay Arana for the threshing floor for the animals that he's going to sacrifice so that he is a true and real sacrifice on his part. Comments? Yeah, I think we've diminished the definition of the word sacrifice. And as we diminish the definition of it, we diminish the goals that we have. So in pursuing to be better people and serving God, we think that the little things that we do now are sacrifices. And I think if the apostles or the people of the first century saw us, they would be like, that's not sacrifice. What we did is sacrifice. You guys are just having it easy. Yeah. So we need to change our definition of sacrifice. Good point. Yes. One of the most valuable things in this day and age, just isn't money. It's usually time. Like actually setting aside time to you know, study the Bible and to worship God in the way that he deserves to be. And that's something that we usually don't sacrifice as much as we should. Good point. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think we said this before, but I'm assuming this instance also um, that David would have had a priest or might have had a priest with him to 
Yes. I, I don't believe David is offering the sacrifice with his own hands. I think he would have had a priest. Alec. Um, it's pretty interesting to note that the threshing floor was located on Mount Moriah. Um, yes. I think it's where Abraham offered Isaac. Yes. And also, this is in Jerusalem where God stopped the plague. He didn't allow the angel to destroy it, showing his mercy and the mercy of Isaac. I think that's an interesting place to build a temple where they offer sacrifices and God shows his, you know, for the forgiveness, of, well, not for forgiveness of sins, but to atone for their, for their sins, showing his mercy. Absolutely. At the same site where Abraham once held a knife over his son, David sees the angel of the Lord with the sword drawn. Um, and, and Isaac's death was averted by the ram that he sacrificed in his place. You know, here the death of the rest of the Israelites, perhaps, was averted by offering the sacrifices on this site. And, uh, of course, you know, the, the temple was the place of offering sacrifices where their sins could be atoned for. So, what an appropriate place to, to build the temple. The place that's already being used uh, or has been used as a place of sacrifice that adverts, averts the punishment. So I think that's very appropriate. Eric? It's just interesting studying David's life, and it, we hold him up as an example, <coughs> not necessarily like we, we should morally be what he was all the time, but the thing that really stands out in David's life is how every single time he did something wrong and somebody pointed it out to him, he always recognized that and did something about it. Yes, his response when he's rebuked is the difference between him and Saul say, not that they neither one, that either one of them were flawless, right. both of them had done wrong, but David humbled himself when rebuked and Saul tried to shift the blame and so forth when he was rebuked. Kimberly. I think the greatest sacrifice for me is like us, you know, our lives, like everything we should do, time alone with God is, you know, a great thing, but I think everything that we do every day and every second should be for God. Because we, you know, I died with Christ, and you know, we don't live for ourselves, now we live for God. So. Amen. Those are such important principles, and we forget them, only ignore them. Patrick. Uh, yeah, I really like what Eric had said. I mean, what if we had a brother in our congregation or something that did the things that David did, like killing someone, and you know, having an adulterous relationship and all this horrendous stuff, you know, I feel like we would always like look at this person with like this connotation, wow, he's like really, really bad. Like, I know I was a sinner, but that guy's really, he's really bad. Um, but we do esteem David. Um, I mean, that just really shows the value of God's grace and God's forgiveness. That we can describe David as this righteous, man who searched after, who's after God's heart uh, because of God's grace, that even though he did some horrendous things, it, he was able to be righteous because of God. Amen. If we also see the value of being a prophet. James 5.10 talks about taking an example of, of the suffering and patience that the, that the prophets went through. Take that as an example for ourselves. I can just picture these prophets every now and then. They, they rebuke David and he changed something. He goes back into sin. They're like, oh, he's back at it again. <laughs> and then they're still persistent in talking to him. And every time they do it, it ends up for the better. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah. 
Here. Yes. And, and his suffering, or as Patrick was saying, ah, I mean, so many of our sins, you know, maybe our family knows and a handful of friends, but David's got to advertise to everybody. It's especially hard to be humble when, you know, it's just everybody you know, thinks that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, there's a lot of good things in David in this. And we need to be willing to humble ourselves in front of other people and to acknowledge our sin. We're trying to keep up the front, keep up the appearance, make sure we look good. That's, that's so, you know, destructive to us morally and spiritually. Um, you know, it's interesting that this threshing floor belonged to Iran and the Jebusite. But you remember the Jebusites still were in control of Jerusalem until the early part of David's reign. So you've got Jebusites just sort of as a part of this nation, uh, I think you would say. And uh, David does buy the threshing floor and the animals for 50 shekels of silver, offer, builds an altar, and offers the uh, offerings to the Lord. Uh, and the plague is stopped. God was willing to listen to the sacrifices and, uh, and stop the play. Comments and thoughts on all of this? Ethan? Uh, I'm just curious. I can't find it. What verse says which mountain this is on? Particularly Second <laughs> Chronicles 3 and verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Mount Moriah was the mountain where God told Abraham to go in Genesis 22. So that connects up those three events. Good question. Thank you. Dave. You've mentioned the difference between Saul and David in their attitudes um, and the way they responded. Part of that was due to their attitude about God himself. When, when Samuel comes out to confront Saul, he says the people have brought these animals back to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the psalm that we just read earlier, David saying, you're my Lord, my Savior, my God. Good observation, yes. Do we see him as being your God or our God? Yeah. Other comments or questions? Yes, Kimberly. Like David's mistakes and struggles, that he wins our like blessings to us because we really get to learn, you know, and take from what he has learned and um, apply it to our lives and make our decisions. Definitely, yeah. We it was it would have been better not to have numbered the people. It would have been better to trust in God and not feel the need to pridefully assess our resources. Other thoughts. All right, well, that's 2 Samuel. And uh, we tried to uh, get through this maybe a little bit quicker so we could uh, do the funeral thing. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, really helpful to be able to study this. Thanks for being here. And hopefully, uh, hopefully next year, if the Lord wills, we can uh, do this with a little less uh, inclement weather and a few less uh, hospitalizations and deaths and things of that nature might make it a little bit more focused, but you've made the study, by God's grace, helpful and productive and really good comments and just really good to, to be together. So uh, it's very uh, encouraging. It's definitely a blessing to uh, all of us to be able to share in, in these things and to be able to enjoy uh, you know, this time together that, that we're able to have. So I appreciate that. Uh, Sandra and I and Marcus Fernando will leave fairly soon.
afterwards to go to the funeral home. So, uh, but you're welcome to stay around uh, and.